Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I am going to be speaking with Dr. Brian Balios. Dr. Balios has a number of titles, but uh, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself there. If you don't want, can I call you Brian? Is that okay? Brian's just fine. There Thanks, you go, Sean. Brian. Uh, right, so what, I'm excited to be here. Can you tell me what your titles are? You have a few of them. <laughs> I have a few different, I wear a few different hats, but I, I think basically uh, I, I'm, I'm assistant professor uh, in the Department of Ophthalmology and Vision Sciences at the University of Toronto, and I'm the J. Ardeth Hill Fighting Blindness Canada professor in ocular genetics research. And as the name implies, uh, um, I'm a clinician scientist, and uh, I, I'm, uh, I have my lab laboratory in the the Donald K. Johnson Eye Institute at, at University Health Network in downtown Toronto, where we're doing uh, exciting work on uh, stem cell therapies for inherited disease. And I'm also a, a physician uh, as part of my time, and, and I have a practice at, uh, at University Health Network and also at Sunnybrook, uh, Sunnybrook Hospital. So I wear a few different hats, but uh, I'm, I'm excited to be at the interface of, of science and clinical care. Fair. And just uh, for people listening, you were a very highly recommended guest from one of our other guests, Dr. Alan Slomovic. He says, you need to talk to Brian. Brian is amazing. This guy is going to make waves in, in stem cell research. So um, I'll put you on the spot here about stem cell research. <laughs> research. So you're going to be the, the guy making waves. Uh, I mean, I, 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 Dr. Slomovic's really kind. He, I've known him for many years and, and, and he's doing a lot of great work in the cornea. Uh, with with clinical application of corneal stem cells, but I'm in a different part of the eye. I'm at the back of the eye, as he likes to say, and 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 working uh, working on the retina. So a, a different target. Fair enough. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, stem cell therapies for for uh, I guess in this case uh, inherited retinal diseases is, is your focus, and you know what's the I guess what's the clinical objective with some of the the, the stem cell therapies? Where do these cells come from, et cetera? Sure. So. Um, you know, uh, patients ask, ask this all the time because people have heard about stem cells in, in popular media, or they've heard about it perhaps uh, in other contexts or their, or their doctors have mentioned it. You know, the goal of stem cell therapy for uh, inherited retinal disease is to really regenerate the retina. The idea of how to regenerate the retina using stem cells could fall into a couple of different categories. Um, one of the ways uh, that, that uh, stem cell researchers first thought about how stem cells would help would be actually to replace the, the cells that are, that are lost slowly over time in, in, in many um, inherited retinal conditions. And again, I, I emphasize it slowly over time because these are in many cases, slowly progressing conditions over many years and decades of life. Um, uh, and the, the original goal of stem cell therapy, I think, was really to say, well, if those cells are going away over time, can we, can we replace them? And, and by the cells going away, I mean the light-sensitive cells inside the eye. These are called the photoreceptors, the uh, rods and cones, the ones responsible for nighttime vision, the rods, and the cones responsible for, for daytime vision, as well as their supporting cells. And so cell replacement therapy has for a long time been the major goal of stem cell therapy for these, these conditions. But I think more and more researchers are starting to recognize that, that stem cells may have other actions that we didn't anticipate. And one of those, one of those is called a neurotrophic effect. Neurotrophic uh, refers to the idea that these stem cells can release chemical compounds, factors, they can, they can produce them like little factories and, and release them into their environment. 
And these factors that they release, these chemical compounds may actually have a beneficial effect on, on neighboring cells or cells nearby. And that transplanted stem cells may actually improve the health of the cells already present inside the eye. And so maybe not beyond just replacing cells, they may have this effect of improving the health of the retina. It's called neurotrophic effect. And then as, as time went on and, and, and researchers in, in, with backgrounds in retinal biology and, and physicians and clinicians with interest in retinal disease got together and, and started using stem cells and thinking about how they could be developed into therapies, we realized that some stem cells may actually be able to, to model disease in a plastic Petri dish quite well. And our, our stem cell models of, of inherited retinal disease have become more and more sophisticated over time. So sophisticated, in fact, uh, that we can now create tiny, what we call organoids, mini organs, little retinal structures, three-dimensional structures in the plastic Petri dish. And we can create these structures with the same uh, um, uh, genetic changes that occur in the patient and try to understand, you know, maybe we can, we can learn more about the disease uh, by being able to manipulate these in the plastic Petri dish, try new drugs, uh, take away factors, add factors, and develop new therapies. So I, you know, when I think of stem cell therapy, I think of it in a very broad sense. I think of it not just replacing cells, but I think of all these other things that stem cells could potentially do to help us eventually treat inherited retinal disease. No, and that's a nice, uh, certainly a nice overview. I like the, uh, how the research side of things has gone because I, I've been out of research for a while now and yeah. didn't have the luxury of to working with these these retinal organoids in culture, but it would have been a lot of uh, I don't say a lot of fun, but I mean it must be very you know informative um, tools for uh, for studying. Now these now these retinal organoids um, you're getting like where are these cells coming from that you're using, and then also the cells that you're using in not necessarily you, but I mean, you and anybody else involved in these clinical trials, um, what are the sources of these cells, um, of these stem cells, I guess? Yeah. So uh, just taking a step back to touch on something you said, I mean, it is really exciting that we can now make these, these little organoids in the dish. When I was doing my PhD studies, uh, and we, we didn't have retinal organoids, we were trying to, to grow photoreceptors, light sensitive cells, uh, create them from stem cells in the plastic Petri dish and on a, on a flat Petri dish. And, 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 you know, the eye is a three-dimensional structure. The retina is a three-dimensional structure. It has, it has, uh, it has length, it has width, it has depth. And, um, in a plastic Petri dish, everything grows on a flat surface in two dimensions. And we would, we would have these cells growing and we knew that they were expressing the right proteins that, that, that photoreceptors should. But one of the biggest criticisms we always faced was they never took on the proper shape. They didn't look like the photoreceptors look like in the human eye. And now we can actually make uh, these organoids that have, like I said, width and depth and, and length and, and they're three-dimensional structures that self-organize. Um, we can get these uh, stem cells that we're, we're using to model disease and, and think about uh, cell replacement from a number of different sources. Um, uh, one of, the, uh, one of the, the most promising sources are called pluripotent stem cells. And pluripotent refers to the fact that, that in their native state, these stem cells could potentially make any tissue in the body. They could make uh, nerve tissue, they could make skin tissue or muscle tissue or gut tissue. But using combinations of chemical factors, we can, we can coax these, these pluripotent stem cells to turn specifically into retinal cells. 
and uh, we become quite uh, quite good at turning these uh, pluripotent cells into retinal stem cells. Uh, these are cells that only make the uh, stem cells that only make the different types of light sensitive cells uh, inside the eye. And these are the cells that we are we are working with now. Pluripotent stem cells is a is a broad term. Um, you know, one of the one of the most uh, uh, one of the oldest sources of pluripotent stem cells is something called the embryonic stem cell. These are uh, these are cells that were originally uh, isolated from the from the blastocyst, uh, the, the earliest stage of human development, and then they're grown in culture now in the dish. And there's many different cell lines. And the, one of the characteristics of a stem cell is that one of the cardinal properties is that it can self-renew forever. It can just keep dividing and making more copies of itself. And so in labs all around the world, uh, you know, these stem cells, these embryonic stem cells continue to proliferate and divide, make more copies of themselves. And we take a few every now and then, and we transform them into retinal cells to study them or to try to develop therapies. Embryonic stem cells are one source, but in the last uh, probably 15 years or so, um, a new exciting source uh, called induced pluripotent stem cells have arisen. And they have the same properties of embryonic stem cells, but we don't need to go to the embryo, the human embryo to get them. We can get them directly from patients. We can get them from adult patients. Uh, originally it was from a skin sample, but now we can get them from a simple blood sample like you would give for your routine blood work with your doctor. And uh, from those blood cells, we can uh, transform uh, those cells into cells that behave for all intents and purposes, just like embryonic stem cells. And now many groups are working on, on, uh, on the retinal cells made from these induced pluripotent stem cells, or we call them IPS cells, that using the retinal cells that come from those to, to create these cell therapies or these neurotrophic therapies or these, these models of disease. Um, you know, those are, those are probably the embryonic stem cells and IPS cells have been uh, one of the, two of the most heavily studied cell types. Uh, we also know that the, the eye as it develops um, from the embryo actually, uh, actually develops from stem cells itself. And these stem cells uh, are quiescent in the adult uh, eye. That means they don't divide anymore, but you can take these cells out of the eye from the adult and actually get them to grow again in the dish. These are adult stem cells. And, and we've also worked a lot with those to understand how they behave. Oh, that's, and that's nice. The, um, I remember, so you and I have some overlapping experience, um, living and working in, in Boston and I've uh, gotten to know a lot of the same people, um, yes. albeit at different, at different periods. I think I'm older than you, but, <laughs> but, uh, um, I, back then I remember using the uh, mouse, um, uh, these mouse retinal progenitor cells and studying these quite a bit. And, uh, and back about that, that time, that was 2007, I think when I was in, in Boston, that uh, it was just then they're starting to work with the um, uh, with the human uh, uh, retinal progenitor cells. So it was pretty exciting times back then. But here we are, fourteen years later, and you're doing cooler things. But uh, well, I mean, um, you know that that work was that work was fundamental. I mean, the work you did uh, in in Boston at Skepin's uh, uh, Eye Research Institute, or you know, with with Michael Young and, and, and that group, um, you know, those retinal progenitor cells the studies of those have actually advanced to the point that there, there are, there are two clinical trials going on right now for using those cells in humans, in patients with retinitis pigmentosa, uh, to try to, uh, to try to replace, uh, uh, and, and support the health of, uh, of the cells in RP, uh, in patients with RP. And, uh, 
having been involved in, in one of those studies. And it's a really exciting time. And I think that we're, this is just the tip of the iceberg for, for stem cell based therapies in the eye. Um, those studies are using human progenitors, uh, um, embryonic retinal progenitors that uh, come from the developing retina. Um, but many more studies are planned using these cells that, uh, that come from organoids. Uh, and are grown from these pluripotent stem cells. So I think we're just, you know, we're already in humans with these studies, but I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of what stem cells can do. It's a field that that's younger than gene therapy, um, but it's it's uh, growing uh, at a at an exciting rate. You know, and that's the thing, right? Like as a when you're in the research side of things, or as a clinician, and you see how fast the field is progressing. You, like you literally cannot keep up. You, you, it's impossible to read all of the relevant studies that you, uh, that are out there. Um, it's, there's just so much happening, but from a patient's perspective, you, you know, it's kind of binary. It's like, okay, Hey, there's this new, this new field of stem right. cell therapies, you know, 20 yeah. years ago or, or whatever, how many years ago. And it's like, okay, Hey, I'm still blind and it's still not helping me. Right. But there's been a thousand little steps along the way. And there's certainly been some uh, some challenges as well. Um, there have, I mean, I, I borrow the stem cell term. I mean, the advances are proliferating, you know, they're, they're growing <laughs> off, they're growing off each other. They're, they're changing and evolving as they, as they divide and they become more variegated and, and people learn more about the different potentials of these, these therapies. But I, I, I don't think it's a one size fit all. I, I don't think the stem cells are, are a cure-all for all retinal disease. And when I, when I talk to patients uh, with inherited retinal disease and we, we sit together and, and look at their clinical results, we, we pay special attention to, look, you know, how are things for you on this day? Not thinking, uh, you know, about, about the disease as a, as a lump, but thinking as, you know, wow, look at all of these light-sensitive cells you do have. These are cells that might be amenable to things like gene therapy or, or factors to protect them. And then thinking about patients where maybe they've, they've lost a majority of their cells and saying, well, you know, gene therapy is, is, is maybe not as helpful at this stage. Maybe trying to replace cells is more helpful. And so I, I think in the end, these therapies are going to be tailored, not just, you know, to, uh, to a, a big catch-all disease like RP, but it's going to depend on the stage and where patients are at in their condition. And I think that's exciting because what it really means in the end and what we all want as, as practitioners and also as patients, of course, is uh, choice. People want choice uh, and they want to have uh, an opportunity to choose options of therapy. And that's really exciting in this field because there really haven't been many or any options for, for decades. I mean, we've known a lot about the disease, but haven't been able to really talk about options for treatment. And now we can actually talk about that. And, and that's really cool and very exciting. Well, and I think it's, it's important, like you mentioned, that there's going to be, you know, different therapies potentially for different stages of the disease. You know, so if you have lost most of your photoreceptors, but still have enough, you know, remaining retinal architecture, well, then maybe you could benefit from, you know, a stem cell based therapy, but gene therapy at least targeted at photoreceptors is not really going to help you because you don't have many photoreceptors, right? So it, it's uh, going to be stage specific. I think a lot of these, uh, a lot of these treatments and just the fact that a lot of them are um, evolving very quickly and advancing uh, quickly in parallel is nice, right? That it's not necessarily just going to be, Oh, someone who's end stage disease could benefit or someone who's early stage. 
Yeah. Um, Six or seven years ago, we had, we had one gene therapy that was, was just emerging on, uh, out of, out of the phase three clinical trials, Luxterna, um, Feretagene, the Parvovec, which is, a um, you know, the gene therapy for, for patients with, um, changes in the RPE 65 gene. Uh, and now we have, um, you know, tens of ongoing trials. We have, we have, uh, uh, for, for many different genes, uh, X for X-linked RP for X-linked, uh, uh, retinoschisis for, uh, genes associated with, uh, various genes associated with Leber's congenital amaurosis, a variety of different RP genes. And, um, and again, these, these genetic therapies are, are proliferating and, and several of these are, in, in phase three studies, it's quite advanced studies. And, and that's really exciting. I think we're going to see some, some more choices emerge and we're going to start to cover, uh, you know, uh, a more uh, greater and greater populations of patients who can, who can benefit. Cause we have to remember that, you know, one of the limitations of, of gene therapy is that, you know, it's, it's an approach that, that depends um, in many times, not all cases, but in many cases depends on treating a specific gene. And, and we know that there's over 250, almost 300 genes involved in, in various types of inherited retinal disease. And so, um, you know, the trials right now are trying to, to treat the most common, but we don't want to leave anyone behind uh, uh, in the end for, for these conditions. And, and I think one of the exciting things about, about stem cell therapies or potentials of stem cell therapies have been true for a long time is that the hope is that it can treat patients um, regardless of, of what gene, uh, has been changed. And, you know, I think that that's been, that's been the idea for a long time, but I'll be honest with you. You know, I, I, I think there's, there is evidence emerging that the certain stem cells may not have the same efficacy in all different, uh, in, in all different types of inherited retinal disease, depending on the gene. So that's kind of an active area of work where we're trying to understand, maybe stem cells are more helpful with, uh, with patients, um, uh, with a certain type of gene mutation and, and not others. Uh, and maybe we need to use a different stem cell for those patients. So that's, that's where the, that's where the field is kind of growing into right now. But you bring up, a, you know, a good point because, you know, when you're looking from the outside in and, and you think this is like a, you know, just this continuous, uh, you know, borrowing from Jim, Jim Collins, like the 20, the 20 mile March, right. Every day, just, marching forward, we're, we're, we're making advancements, making advances. There are a lot of things that, you know, zigzag and even take steps back in, in the overall uh, progression of anything, and certainly in medical research. What are some of the challenges, anything that comes to mind that the field has faced, whether it's gene therapy or stem cell therapy, anything that's come up, challenges or obstacles that maybe were unforeseen beforehand, anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that immediately comes to mind that, that touches on both stem cell therapy and gene therapy and even other uh, what we call neuroprotective strategies to protect the cells that are, that are, are present within the retina is, is, you know, one of the biggest challenges has been understanding uh, our, our, how we assess clinically effectiveness of these therapies. How do we understand whether these therapies are actually having a beneficial effect in patients? Um, given what we know about how patients perform different visual tests and also, um, you know, what's relevant to a specific disease. RP is a great example where, um, you know, visual acuity is something, uh, you know, reading vision and reading, a, reading an ETDRS chart, uh, you know, uh, reading the letters on the board or is, is actually something that, that changes um, 
is not the first thing to change in the in the disease. I mean, patients uh, with RP typically report changes in their night vision and their side vision long before they report changes in their central vision. There's obviously exceptions to to that, but that's a, a general pattern. And so, um, for uh, for trials assessing the effectiveness of therapies for macular degeneration, where the the reading vision is the first thing to change. I mean, they really depend on outcomes based on how patients perform on a, on an eye chart. It's not really relevant to, to conditions uh, or to treatments uh, uh, treating early stage retinitis pigmentosa. We really want to know maybe how these uh, patients are, are, uh, are changing in response to therapy with respect to their visual field. And how can we assess that accurately? Recognizing that, you know, if you put it, if you have a patient practice uh, time after time, uh, visit after visit, there's a natural learning effect that they can get better at the field uh, over time, whether they they have RP or, or whether they don't have RP. And so um, um, creating new and relevant assessments of clinical efficacy has become really, really important. Um, a great example was, uh, was in the, the trial for um, RPE65 gene therapy for Luxterna. Um, they said, well, maybe we shouldn't be thinking about visual acuity. Let's actually test how these patients navigate a, a visual environment in something that's that's akin to what they might encounter in real life. So they set up an obstacle course and uh, um, they had patients navigate the obstacle course under different levels of light. Um, and, and they set up pieces of, of, of obstacles that would be akin to uh, home furniture, different heights, and tried to adjust levels of illuminance at different parts of the obstacle course. And, and actually found that this was the test that, that best measured efficacy with respect to the, to the gene therapy and best captured what patients were telling us. And, and that brings us to another thing. You know, we, we depend so much on, on objective metrics of, of effectiveness, what we can measure in the clinic. One of the really exciting areas of research is what we call patient reported outcomes. What are patients really telling us about how their vision is changing in response to these therapies? I've heard many stories from patients after receiving different types of gene therapies, talking about, you know, talking about phenomena, which changes in their color vision, their contrast sensitivity, their sensitivity to bright or dim lights that are, that are very difficult to quantify or that in ophthalmology, we haven't yet developed tools to quantify these. And yet these are real patient reported outcomes and we're getting better at capturing that, that data and using it to inform how we go forward. So, that's been a challenge, and those are some of the ways we're trying to get around it. Um, there's other challenges that are that are that are cell therapy specific. We could talk about, but I think that from a clinical perspective, clinical assessment of outcomes is a is a big one. Well, you know, it's really interesting you're talking about that, and I mean, I didn't know the conversation was going to go that way, but I have so many things in my own life that I went through my mind as you're you're saying these things, right? Like my, mm-hmm. you know, just for the, for the record, my, uh, my right eye visual acuity is basically light perception. Um, and maybe, yeah, no more light perception, maybe hand motion on a good day. Um, and my left eye on a good day would be 2,400, which also means in a high contrast telephone, uh, with, you know, a lot of zoom on, I can still see a few letters at a time. Mm-hmm. And, but so if I could go from, uh, you know, seeing a little bit better there, it might not help my day to day that much. But if I could, you know, not, you know, <laughs> trip over my dogs in the house or or not, uh, you know, bump into bump into people as I'm walking through aisleways and stuff like that, that, you know, for me is 
more impactful in my life than uh, maybe the the improvement in visual acuity. So um, I think having the patient perspective is certainly certainly useful. Um, but you, you alluded to this, some cell specific challenges. Maybe if you can you just touch on those a little bit. Sure. I mean, uh, um, cell survival uh, and and the and the uh, way in which we can encourage cells to survive after after transplantation into the eye and in cell therapy has been a major challenge. Um, you know, uh, uh, cells. Um, what we've learned is that cells uh, on their own um, undergo a process of programmed cell death uh, called apoptosis, and they, uh, unless they're able to integrate into a tissue efficiently and in a timely fashion, uh, they tend to, to, to degenerate and, and die. And one problem uh, myself and, and many others have been working on for a long time is, is how to uh, improve the survival of these cells long enough for them to have their beneficial effect after, after they've been used in a cell therapy, and whether it be for neurotrophic or it be to actually integrate into the, 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 the retina itself. And, uh, you know, we tried a few different approaches for this and, and, and groups have tried, you know, do we, do we mix the cells together with, with uh, growth factors and survival factors to help them? Uh, one approach that I, I've taken for a long time is to try to use uh, uh, my experience in, in bio, uh, biomaterial engineering to, um, to create, uh, to create a, a delivery matrix that these cells can live in that when they're delivered into the eye and it's an injectable gel that they can actually survive and, and, and live long enough inside the retina to, uh, to grow and, and, uh, and, and survive and integrate. Um, but cell survival has been, has been a big problem. And the, in the, in the initial studies, survival was, was far below 1% of the total transplanted cell population. And, and now we're getting cell survival levels upwards of, uh, upwards of 20% to 25%, which is, a, which is a huge improvement when you think about um, just how many cells you need to actually provide to the retina and get integration. I don't think anyone expects that we'll ever get 100% survival of cells. And, and no, no therapy is 100% uh, efficient, but now we're talking about uh, as a percentage, we're talking about millions of cells now that can actually survive and potentially integrate. Um, and that's, that's really exciting because uh, we think that we're going to need millions of cells to, to replace, uh, to replace those inside the, the retina. So cell survival has been a, been a challenge for a long time. And then the other one I touched on was, was understanding how these cells behave in, in different conditions, different diseases. Um, you know, um, for a long time, researchers, uh, treated all, all RP uh, models as, as sort of akin and the same and interchangeable. Um, but I think what we recognize now is that cells may uh, have different efficiencies integrating into the retina, depending on what gene is, is mutated. And, and, and you know, that's not something you can just try in, in patients, right? That's not something you can just design a trial to, to get at. We, but now with some of these retinal organoid models and these better models of disease in the dish, I think we can actually approach uh, answering that question and then tailoring the cell therapy to the, to the patient and their specific genetic, uh, uh, genetic variant. So I want to take a little bit of a turn um, and talk about something I know is close to heart for you. Um, another area maybe maybe making waves and it's in pathways of care. Um, you know, when we spoke um, a few weeks ago for the first time, you, you know, you brought this up, these pathways of care and that there are some inefficiencies that exist. Um, when it comes to ophthalmology and eye care in general, can you just talk a little bit about the pathways of care, what maybe inefficiencies exist and, you know, where you see opportunities to um, either yourself or just collectively make an impact? 
Yeah, I think you know it's it's very challenging for patients with inherited disease to to find to find a home with a provider for themselves that 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 can you know can understand uh, their their very specific condition because these are usually very specific conditions that depend on a specific gene. Um, you know, to find a to find a home with a, a provider uh, who can who understands the the uh, uh, to understands how to assess uh, progression of their condition, how to connect them with the the advances that may be relevant, uh, uh, and and if they're interested in trials, potentially connecting them with something that's that's appropriate and and specific to their their stage of their condition. Um, and I, I think that. Um, you know, this is a field that's expanding, but nothing's ever growing fast enough. Nothing's ever growing fast enough for patients and, and, and for providers. And so with a small number of providers with focused training and in inherited disease, I think it, uh, you know, we really have to be, we have to be reaching out and we have to find better ways to engage and educate our, our, our optometry and ophthalmology colleagues uh, our other retinal specialists who are specialists in other parts of uh, other diseases of the retina that are not necessarily genetic diseases, engage and educate them in, in how, to, how to manage patients, how to address their concerns, how to understand when it's, they have a patient who's uh, appropriate to refer on for more advanced testing. And as a community, we need to come, come together uh, better because it is, a, it is a, a time of growth in this field for a long time, for decades, as I was alluding to before, uh, inherited retinal disease was really a, a field of ophthalmology of eye care that um, it was really about making a, a, an accurate diagnosis, but there wasn't, there wasn't too much we could do to help these patients beyond counseling them around uh, how to uh, and work with them on how to adapt their vision to their, their changing uh, life and life demands. But now with the idea that therapies are here and we're doing them in trials and they're actually getting approved, um, it's even more important that our colleagues know when is it right to send patients on and when is it right to, to engage them? And how do we talk to patients about what it means to be as part of a trial or part of a therapy, recognizing the trials are not therapies, trials are experiments in humans and, 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 and potentially a great benefit, but, but understanding a patient's desire to participate. And finally, you know, we live in the age of genomic medicine. We live in an age when, um, you know, finding out, what gene is causing um, is causing your inherited retinal condition has a huge implication, not just on understanding and telling you where do you expect to go in the future, but how can you interface with new therapies? And so pathways to genetic testing um, is, is a real, you know, is a real passion of mine. I think that we're, we're not doing a good enough job as a, as a community of practitioners at getting patients a genetic diagnosis, at getting, uh, patients to know what's what's the gene that's actually causing their their inherited retinal condition, and that requires some advocacy on our part and, and on the part of of uh, uh, patient uh, uh, patient care organizations. You know, I, I think that uh, we want to in our healthcare system here in Canada, we, we want to have efficient genetic testing that's supported by our public healthcare system, and like so many things in our public healthcare system, it's not always the most efficient to, uh, pathway uh, to, to get a patient uh, from a, 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 a diagnosis like you have an inherited retinal condition to it's caused by, by this gene. Um, and I, that lag time between 
the genetic diagnosis and the di- between the diagnosis of you have an inherited retinal condition and the genetic diagnosis, that lag time can be can be actually several years uh, for patients, and we need to do a much better job. And that's going to require partnering with our colleagues in, in clinical genetics more broadly, who think about genetic conditions outside of the eye across the entire body. Um, and it's it's also going to depend on us as ophthalmologists to become more informed about about genes and their roles in disease. But I think you know there's a lot of hope here that we're going to be able to to push this forward and, and get more efficient uh, uh, pathways to effective care for patients. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic in that area. We can learn a lot from our colleagues around the world and, and study how they're doing it and and uh, and and bring a lot of them. Um, bring a lot of those things uh, home as well. And, and, and then we have a lot to teach from our, our healthcare system, which is unique in the world. Well, you know, I think that there's, we can point at the healthcare system. I think that if you look back, let's say 20 years ago, um, and someone, you know, goes to their ophthalmologist or optometrist and they get diagnosed, we talk about retinitis pigmentosa a lot, so we can give that as an example. Okay, you, you know, by the clinical signs um, and symptoms, you have retinitis pigmentosa. Unfortunately, there's not much that can be done about it right now. You know, we'll do uh, annual follow-ups. If you have any major change in your vision, come back and see me. I think that was kind of the, you know, how it was handled. But since then, there have been some therapies developed. And in the case of Luxterna uh, um, for RP65, that is now approved by Health Canada. Um, and stories that I've heard, like they're actually trying to find, I think Novartis is, is involved in uh um, making Luxterna available in Canada, but correct me if I'm wrong. And yes, th- they were actually like trying to find patients. Like there's, they know there's patients out there. There's patients that, you know, yeah. could benefit from this, yeah. but there are people just have never had genetic testing. So they can't, they don't know. And it's like, <laughs> they have some sort of campaign to try and find the patients. Like, hi, we have this therapy well, now that's approved, but who wants true. it? It's true. <laughs> it's you know, it's it, crazy it, though. That's crazy. It's, it's true. I mean, you know, there's companies uh, around the world that, that have become so eager to to find patients for these therapies that they've been developing that they're they're um, the companies are actually sponsoring uh, genetic testing. So it's it's um, you know it's it's free to the patient. They don't have to pay out of pocket. The company is sponsoring the testing, and in a in a healthcare system like Canada, it raises a little bit of a it raises a little bit of a challenge in the, in that how do we how do we ensure that the the government, you know, is it retains, uh, you know, the sort of um, the, the the responsibility to continue to to provide uh, testing when necessary for patients. But but there's so much eagerness to find these patients um, uh, around the country. You know, the scientist in me, when I when I meet with a patient, the scientist in me, you know, I, I want to know the gene. I, I want to know for all the patients I see. I want to know the gene. I recognize that, uh, you know, patients. Uh, uh, you know, they come to these decisions. Um, uh, it, it can be very complex when deciding whether you want to have genetic testing done, the implications of knowing a gene, how it influences uh, what you know about the family and, and, and potentially family planning for future generations. Um, you know, there's a lot of counseling needs to go around that. The decision to get genetic testing shouldn't be made lightly. But I, I you know, I think that, that there could be um, you know, we, we need to tell patients that there can be a lot of benefit to knowing the, the specific gene. And, and like you said, Sean, you know, time, times have changed. And um, uh, like you said, it was very different in the past where you tell the patient, you know, you have RP and, uh, and this is what you might expect and come back and see me in a year or two years and, and follow up with your regular eye doctor and, and let's see, let's see how things go. 
I think we need to, you know, explain to all of our colleagues that that another option should be put forward on the table, which is, by the way, some really exciting things going on in this space, uh, and a lot of being able to engage with those exciting things depends on knowing the gene. And the sooner we know the gene, the sooner we can figure out which of those exciting things might actually be applicable to you as a patient. So, um, so you know, at the end, the choice is always the patients, but um, they should they should know they have a choice, and we should be able to provide them with an efficient choice. Uh, and um, that's just about good personalized medicine. Well, I think that, that it's the last part of that that's been, you know, some of the where the frustration comes about. It's not, you know, for the the patients that say, "Hey, you know, I don't, I don't really want to know. You know, I just rather kind of live my life." Okay, fine, that's your personal <laughs> choice. But for the ones who want to know, I think that there there's a lot of instances where they'll go just to their their frontline eye care providers and say, "Hey, like, where can I get genetic testing?" And the answer is like, "I don't really know." Yeah. Um, and, and that, like, I've heard, I've heard this numerous times uh, from people and just they don't really know where to go. And, and they, these are ophthalmologists and optometrists. So I think that there's, you know, a huge education component out there, uh, again, because maybe when they were going through their training, there weren't these therapies really in the pipeline. So it was just the idea of sending patients for genetic testing was never really part of the, you know, the, the follow the care process. Um, but I think moving forward, that it, it seems to be, uh, you know, necessary to, for patients who want to know what their, their, uh, the underlying mutation is so that they could qualify for therapies that are up and coming. Right. And not every, not every care provider is necessarily going to feel comfortable ordering genetic testing themselves on their patient. I mean, they, the genetic test, the interpretation of the results of genetic testing can be complex and, and can involve, um, you know, can involve a, a large amount of analysis that has to go into determining whether, um, a misspelling in a gene that a genetic test identifies is actually relevant to, to the condition that we see in the patient. And so if, you know, if physicians or their patients are saying, I want to get genetic testing, but they're, they're not sure they're necessarily comfortable themselves, they, they should know they have resources available or people to re- refer to or, or to colleagues to talk to who, who have more comfort in this space and can, and can help navigate that path. So, um, and, and the other thing that, you know, happens is, is sometimes patients get genetic testing and it doesn't yield a result uh, right away. You know, it, it doesn't come back. And about 30% of the time, uh, you know, you get a genetic test and it doesn't show right away what the, what the misspelling is in the gene. And patients can get discouraged because they, they say, well, why did I do that genetic testing and wait that time? And I didn't get it. You know, they didn't find the gene. And, and part of it is because we don't know all the misspellings and genes that can cause disease. Sometimes we see a misspelling. We, we don't think it's actually causative of the disease, but it might be. Um, and, and I, I, some, you know, if it's been a few years, patients have had genetic testing that was negative. I like to have a discussion with patients about how we might go, you know, go back to the table and, and try again for genetic testing, because this is a field that's the field of genetic testing and finding these gene mutations. That's also something that's evolving at a lightning pace. And, uh, and, and so re-engaging patients uh, who maybe weren't successful the first time through at finding their gene and reminding them that, look, you know, things cha- have changed incredibly quickly in the last five, 10 years. Uh, genetic testing has been around for, for, uh, for a couple of decades, and, and, but the efficiency of doing it is improving uh, all the time. So we should be not just engaging new patients with their choices, but we should not be forgetting about those patients who've had some investigations done and, and never received a, as clear a, as clear a diagnosis and bring them back to the table. 
No, I think that's good advice. So, um, Brian, I've taken a lot of your time, but I, I want to uh, take the opportunity here to thank you for for joining and coming on the, the podcast. Maybe as you get settled into your uh, various new roles, wearing your new hats um, and make those waves that have been promised, <laughs> then uh, we, we can get you back in the podcast to you know share some of the um, some of the the research uh, that's been done by your group and and uh, and related groups and uh, share that with the audience. That'd be a lot of fun. It was great chatting with you, Sean. Great. Thanks so much. And that concludes today's episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening.